I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upsound. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and today I am joined by Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Hello, Chuck. Welcome back. Yeah, Abby. So nice to to see you. you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Very, very good to see you. We have a very interesting story today that was published in the New York Post by Luis Cassiano. Got a lot of attention this week. Uh, it is entitled Homeless Los Angeles Man Builds Wooden House on Hollywood Boulevard Sidewalk. So Wait, the you, title. You, you gave me like three different articles to choose from. Like, should we t- what should we talk about this week? And you gave this one. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we have <laughs> three to of the same this. story. <laughs> <laughs> Please, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about this because uh, there's there's a lot to say. So the title pretty much gets right to the point. A uh, homeless man in LA built a small house on the sidewalk, causing mixed reactions. From Not really homeless anymore after he builds yeah, a yeah. house. <laughs> That's a good point. So, <laughs> yeah, so they need to update the headline. Um, but it's getting mixed reactions from people who are in the neighborhood, mixed reactions kind of uh, nationally now that the story kind of went viral over the past week. The house itself is basically a tiny mobile home, so it's on wheels. It sits on the sidewalk on Hollywood Boulevard, and it even has, you know, potted plants out front and little hanging baskets. It's kind of cute. The the man who built the house calls himself Q, and he's actually an Army veteran from Kansas City, fun fact. So he's lived in L.A. for a little while now, and he was living in a tent, and he says that he was getting tired of getting his stuff cleared out by the city's sanitation teams. He didn't want to live in any of the camps that the city is, has put up, said he you know, basically doesn't feel comfortable at those. So he worked with the community to gather a bunch of materials, including a generator, and built his own tiny house. And he says he earns money fixing people's electric scooters and wants to start his own business and hopes that he can be an example for people in a similar situation as him. So I wanted to talk about this and kind of get your reaction to it because this is one of those things that I think people, it's like people are seeing this article and they're like, wow, and it's kind of shocking. But I actually I actually have a feeling that it's not quite as uncommon as we probably think it is. It's, you know, he's right out on Hollywood Boulevard, so we're all seeing it. But in my own city, I've I've seen people who have built makeshift houses back in the woods. I won't say where. People are kind of responding to their environments in different ways. And in a weird way, it's almost like this is a rational response to the housing crisis. You know, this this guy, when he's interviewed, doesn't sound like he's an illogical person. He's just very matter of fact, like this is where he lives. And <laughs> Right. Can we, can we start with him? Yes. Because I feel like there's so many things with this article that need to be discussed. But, but the first one to me is him, right? He calls himself Q, which, you know, for Star Trek next generation people is kind of funny, but he's uh, not that kind of Q. 
there's a small vibe that you get that is the homeless, mentally challenged vibe, right? But it's a real small part of it. If you actually listen to him, you also get this really strong entrepreneurial vibe. This is not a guy out asking for handouts, right? This is a guy with like a real do he he watched do-it-yourself YouTube videos on how to build a tiny house. He went out and salvaged materials from like around the neighborhood. He didn't steal them. He went out and like took people stuff that people weren't using and he put this know-how together like could I could I borrow some electricity? Yes. Could I get your tools? Yes. And and he built this place. When when we think of homeless people, often we think of people who are addicted to drugs, who are addicted to whatever, who have mental issues. I think that you could say about this particular person, Q, as he calls himself, he is not someone who fits into or probably will ever fit into the nine to five society where you're going to have a 30 year mortgage and go to a job at nine o'clock and wear a tie and come home and, you know, tuck your kids like that. That's just not who he is, but he is also not the personification of the strung out, you know, like what have you. He is a normal person with a really strong entrepreneurial bent to himself in a different time and in a different place. This guy would be, Incredible. He, I mean, he would he, he like the mayor, uh, you know, he would be, he I, would be. I, the, I was just thinking like, like, you know, 100, 200 years ago when people were arriving to America and were technically homeless, you know, settling in little villages and constructing homes. I mean, people were just constructing homes using locally local material and, and putting houses together. I mean, he probably would have been the mayor of whatever town he was in. You're crying out loud. You need your Lyme bike fixed? Go talk to Q. You need <laughs> yeah. your, go talk to Q. And, and he's like, he. when we think of entrepreneur in this country, we tend to like, in fact, I'm going to do it right now. I am going to type into Google entrepreneur. And Good I'll luck bet spelling you anything. It. Oh, I got it. I'll bet you anything <laughs> that I get a picture of like Elon Musk or something as like the, you know, in fact, I'm getting like the stock photos that they give you. Let me put an American entrepreneur and I'll bet you I get 10 most influential entrepreneurs of all time. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Warren Buffett. These are, these are not entrepreneurs in the way that I think this country either has entrepreneurs, needs entrepreneurs, has celebrated entrepreneurs. These are essentially like wealthy people who had access to wealth. And I'm not, I'm not um, dissing them. I mean, Bill Gates is a genius. He, he is, is, in a sense, an entrepreneur in that he started a business and grew it. And obviously, it's been massively successful and helped a lot of people, right? But he never risked it all. Q is, is the definition of an entrepreneur. He actually is someone who's out there being like, all right, I got uh, two pieces of board I got from up the street here. I got some nails. I got some of this. And like, I'm going to hack this together and make it happen. And yeah, and it's, it's awesome, honestly. And it is like awesome. the, the interviewers and, and I don't know if you wanted to touch on this, but the people, if you watch the video who are actually interviewing him were like, so smug about it. And they were mm -hmm. so rude to him. They called the cops 
for their interview just for their to interview. be like, yeah, we called the police to see if they're doing <laughs> anything about this. And then it kind of forced the city to need to, you know, tell him he needs to move his house. And it's like, I, I mean, it was literally one of the most smug interviews I've ever seen. And one of the anchor ladies didn't know how a generator worked in the middle of the interview asking if it was plugged into the city's power. I just... I mean, and his responses to things were so matter of fact, like, so, you know, yeah, this is what I'm doing. No, I, I don't want to live in an apartment. Like they asked him, if if we were to give you an apartment and a job, you know, that an apartment that you could pay for and a job that gives you enough money to pay for that, would you do that? And he basically said, no, like I opt right. out. I don't want to do she that. She says at the end, like he obviously doesn't want a job. And I'm like, what? So he doesn't know. He doesn't is, want a job. <laughs> this yeah. is the other point I wanted to make about him. And I think this says a lot about us and it will get us to the, uh, the thing I want to talk about, about housing. We are as a society, and I'm not saying you and me or any individual listening, but in general, as a society, we are if not comfortable with, at least tolerant of homelessness. We see the tent cities, the encampments, people sleeping under the bridge, and we in our brains have rationalizations and justifications for it. Uh, we will maybe donate to charity. We will maybe do what have you because we care about this. But for the most part, this is not an existential crisis for any of us. We, we will step over the homeless person or step past the homeless person. And I'm going to say this as a Catholic, e even as Christians, we will even, we're instructed to help homeless people and to put them front and center. And we will not do that. That is what we are as affluent, comfortable people. That's what, what we do. I'm not suggesting that we're somehow extraordinarily deficient. It's just that we are very human, and that, I think that's a human reaction. So we have a comfort level with homelessness as it exists. We also, as a society, have a comfort level with the middle class, right? Like that is what's normal. And you get that vibe from the reporters, like, hmm, th this man, Q, falls into this gray zone in the middle that we are really uncomfortable with. Um, we are really uncomfortable with because, first of all, it's not this category that we can give charity to or walk past and, you know, oh, the government should take care of that or whatever. And and it's also not in this category that is like us and fits in with us. It's something that is is in the middle. And it is, in strong towns parlance, it is almost like a hum human personification of the chaotic but smart n notion and mindset. And when we put this forward, like, you know, you can have orderly but dumb or you can have chaotic but smart. And people will say, well, we prefer smart to dumb. And I'm like, okay, yes, but you have a tremendous preference for order over chaos. And we will tolerate a ridiculous amount of dumb in order to not experience chaos. Q personifies the chaos. And that is, to me, why he represents this kind of thing that we struggle to acknowledge or to deal with. That's why we react the way we do to it. So when you were talking earlier, I was thinking that, you know, we we kind of tolerate, we, to we tolerate homelessness more than we tolerate what is essentially shanty housing or even like any kind of development that is like, 
you know, minorly doesn't fit the character is, you know, what we think of as maybe ugly. I mean, it's, and maybe it's because people see a, a homeless person and they assume, you know, they're going to go somewhere else eventually and it won't really be my problem. And so people kind of hope that people, you know, the people just, you know, keep moving. And I, and I understand people don't want shanty houses to just be built on all of the sidewalks in the city, but but this story did make me think about, you know, what do people like Q need to be set up for success? And I think it's different from all of the things that the city of LA and many cities have to offer, right? Like they're offering oftentimes temporary housing or places to camp, maybe, you know, places that are kind of degrading um, and degrading jobs, you know, things that people may not want to do. People like Q, who's very entrepreneurial, he he may not want to, you know, take the, the fast food job or a job that, you know, is being offered by the city through some program that essentially no one else wants to do. He has other plans. So, could there be a place where people are allowed to build shanty homes? You know, is that something that that could be allowed in a city, uh, in, in a place? I, I'm not sure. I don't know if that would be really a good policy, but it does make you wonder, especially because like we've gotten so far away from people just building housing, right? You need a house and you just you just build it. I mean, that's kind of the way people built towns and cities when they originated. Well, I'm going to say something and I'm going to ask our listeners to be generous with me because it's going to touch on some things that are kind of third rail for us. But I, I feel like this is an important set of insights. We become very sensitive to the idea that in particular, black communities prior to the automobile era, prior to the highway building era, were stable places that people had community, were investing. You hear of you know, the black Wall Street here and, and the black neighborhood here. And, and I got a tour in Jacksonville uh, last month of this you know, vibrant black neighborhood uh, that was destroyed by highway construction and, and all this. We're very sensitive to that. And rightly so, right? And I think we look back and we see some photos and we see some images and we're like, yes, why, why did we tear this stuff down? And I, I want to point out that in today's mindset, just like in past mindset, we would consider that blight for the most part. We would look at these places because, not because, I mean partially because they were occupied by black people, but we also did this in non-black neighborhoods too. Neighborhoods that were poor prior to our like modern development experiment, neighborhoods that were poor started out looking a lot like shanty towns. That's what they look like. They look like a lot of people building a lot of stuff in just very DIY, scrounge for parts, make it work, put it together kind of ways. That's what early cities were. And that was a necessary phase to get to the next stage and the next stage and the next stage of success. You, you had to, in a sense, go through that startup phase 
that wasn't clean, wasn't uh, sterilized, didn't have the proper setbacks and the proper this and that, didn't look like you know your standard suburban community. These places look chaotic, and they were. They were chaotic, but smart. We have made that illegal. And we haven't made that illegal because we are racist. Uh, we went and tore down a bunch of stuff, partially because we were racist, but also because, you know, it just offended our sensibilities from a, a blight standpoint. We have made that stuff illegal because we are affluent. And the interesting thing, and I think the thing that's worth pointing out, is that because we have raised the bar on what is acceptable housing, we actually have given people like Q no place to get started. And so what you end up with, if you are him, who is not like, let me live in government housing, let, put me in an apartment and I'll work a nine to five job at McDonald's. He is an entrepreneurial, creative person. He, he, he would be a hero in, in many other societies of the past, as you pointed out. What we have said to him is you either conform to a modern American lifestyle where you're going to work a nine to five job and pay rent in an apartment and live below the poverty line and eke out a living with no chance of upward mobility, or you are going to be homeless in a tent encampment because we do not give you a place to get started in a DIY kind of way. And, uh, and well, I was just going to say what's interesting about that it also is that, you know, you talk about kind of when cities and towns were getting started, it was in this this DIY phase, right? The startup phase. And, you know, collectively they were in that startup phase. And I think we have this mindset that, you know, that was 100, 200 years ago, even maybe even further back than that. And we've progressed forward. We are a more sophisticated society. We've risen the bar. We are more affluent now. We don't do things like that anymore. Um, and when you look at the built environment of, you know, a major American city like L.A., it, you know, it's it's an affluent kind of real estate market, right? I mean, it's it's fully built out. It's, you know, constructed with probably modern materials and all that. The property taxes are probably very high and you have this startup phase like recycling through what has already kind of progressed to this, this, this stage of affluence. And I think that that kind of shows you like the wealth disparities between kind of the haves and the have nots. And we've kind of constructed our entire development ecosystem around the haves like that's how we develop cities. It's, you know, really for the people who have lots of capital and and can use it to construct new buildings to high standards. It's not for the the have-nots. It's not for the startup mentality people who will try to get on YouTube and DIY <laughs> their own house. I mean, we it's right. like we've we've assumed that that's not part of the equation anymore. Right. Can we put that in its best light? I feel like we should give that argument it's best uh, standing and and here's what it is we as americans are affluent and we don't want people living in shanty towns we don't want people living in tents we don't want them living in buildings that are not sanitary do not have good roofs are not 
providing a, a high quality of living. And so we are going to raise the standard, raise the bar on what the minimum level of housing is so that the housing that we construct in this country is of this minimum standard that is respectful and equitable and, and, and good for everybody. And as a vision, it's hard to argue with that vision, right? As a, as a vision, there's some sense to that, right? Like we, I, I don't desire for people in this country to live in shanty towns. Yeah, I also in some don't standard really, housing. Exactly. Yeah. I also don't really desire people in this country to live in dorm rooms, but I understand that my daughter next year is going to live in a dorm room because that's part of the cycle of getting to where you don't live in a dorm room anymore. And I think that's the thing that is missing here is that we can have all this compassion for here's the minimum standard of what we'll provide. Oh, there's like a growing number of people who don't even reach that, you know, don't come anywhere near reaching that standard. The solution that we often have is, well, let's go out and make this standard like just include more people. It never scales. It, it never scales up. And so more and more people get trapped in what is actually below the shantytown standard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and not to set you off, but, you know, the, the fact that this is the standard and we have all these people that can't even afford like the lowest of the standard. I mean, it's the market is not working right. Right. I mean, it's, it's because right, everything exactly. is so distorted. And so, you know, theoretically, if if things were working correctly, you would be able to provide housing for what people can afford, what their price point is. There are people who hear us talking and will say, well, Strong Towns thinks that we should have shanty towns and people should live in <laughs> DIY shacks. And it, I, I want to say that's not my aspiration. Like I'm not no. aspiring to that. But what Strong Towns thinks, what I am aspiring to is a path for people to be able to start with nothing and by their own labor and efforts, end up with something. And when we look at Q in this instance, here is the, the, the personification of the entrepreneur, a person who has literally scrounged and started with nothing, built something, however modest and humble it is. The question we should be asking is not how do we get this moved out of here? How do we get this destroyed? How do we call the cops and get this regulated out of existence? The question we should be asking is how do we take this obviously capable entrepreneurial person and help them get to the next level beyond what they've built? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's an important distinction is like we're not advocating that people live in shanty towns, but you know, if, if there are people who are entrepreneurs that just don't fit into our box of, you know, what we expect people to fit into in order to operate in society, I, I mean, it's, we need to, we need to have opportunities for people like this gentleman who has built his own house using DIY methods. It's pretty impressive, I think. I, I, I think he has his life together probably more than I do. I, I couldn't build something like that. Yes. Can I say something that might be a bit partisan? Um, uh, yeah, go for it. <laughs> I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try to do this without making everybody mad. I, I feel like the standard uh, American conservative today, and let's not say conservative. Let's say Republican voter today, because I'm gonna create some distinction. Because I still kind of identify as. A, a, in heart, a conservative-minded person, but I, I, I don't really identify at all with modern Republicans. 
I feel like modern Republicans would be the kind of people who would call the police here and say, this shouldn't be happening. This is disorganized. This is it. And and I, I think that modern Democratic voters uh, and modern Democratic Party would look at this and say, um, well, and in fact, you have politicians in LA who are all Democratic wanting to end this as, you know, this is not acceptable. Um, but they would come up with some kind of narrative about, you know, we, we need to build more housing and, you know, we need to do things for people who are, are at a disadvantage to have them get subsidies or what have you. Uh, I, I think they would also tend to laugh at the idea of bootstrapping as something that is like old fashioned and nostalgic and, you know, something that, that conservatives latch onto. The reality is we should not be calling the police on this person. We should be helping this person. And the reality is, is that this person is bootstrapping themselves up to a better place. We should not laugh at that. We should not try to impugn that. We should not say, well, that's not acceptable to me. And so there go, we need to get some inclusionary zoning so that one out of a hundred people like you can have a place to live and the other 99 can live in the tent encampment. We should actually be saying, wow, here is someone doing something really cool for themselves. It's not, it's not, it doesn't, it's not the end point. It, it, it can't be the end point. But how do we help this person get to the next level of prosperity, the next level of success? To me, the entire political spectrum, natural default is to treat this man, Q, as the problem. And yeah. I see him as a big part of the solution. Yeah, he's definitely part of the solution. I mean, what he's doing is I find it really endearing and impressive and and pretty cool. Like we should be finding ways to help him. And I think this was published in more of a quote unquote conservative. What do any of these words mean these days? Yeah, anymore? what do they mean anymore? Um, <laughs> but, you know, published in a publication where it's definitely showing kind of that side of the story. But I mean, set up one of these bad boys in a deep blue affluent suburb and see what happens. Somebody will definitely be calling uh, the police pretty Probably quickly. even quicker. Yeah. <laughs> Probably I, even I, quicker. Yeah. I, I know there'll be tweets on our episode here that's like, we want people to live in shanty towns. We think that people with mental handicaps should be on the street fending for themselves, doing DIY homes. Um, <laughs> I... I yeah. I think well, that we, if if we are going to respect Black Wall Street, if we are going to respect poor communities of the past that we mistakenly called blighted and wiped off the map because they offended our sensibilities, yeah. if we are going to actually come to grips with that, we have to come to grips with the idea that the path to success, the path to affluence is not tidy and clean. It is a little bit messy and chaotic. Yeah, it's not raising the barrier to entry so that only people with large amounts of capital can participate in, you know, the act of building a home. No, I don't want Q to be living in a shanty town, but this is his first home. What if he was able to have resources and to improve his training? I bet he would end up building a pretty substantially lovely home if he had a little bit of practice and could continue doing this. Maybe he would start a home building company. Maybe he would, you know, start hiring other people. It's it's like 
you know, no, he, he probably, we don't want people to be living in this, you know, version one that he built, but he, he could be, he could be great. And, and why, I mean, yes, maybe our, the first version offends our sensibilities, but, you know, I, I think we need to get over like poor people offending our sensibilities and, you know, things that are not perfect offending our sensibilities. Yes, building codes are important. Yes, we don't want people to live in substandard housing, but we need to construct better paths so that people like him can have the skills that they need to build great housing, right? Well, let me, as a final point, kind of look at the gap between what would be like the standard entry-level home and where Q is at right now. I think if we listen to the kind of main political discussion in this country around housing and look at where things are going, the partial solution to our housing problem is to do things like first home buyer subsidies and lower your down payment. And instead of 30-year mortgages, let's make it 50-year mortgages so that we can lower that payment and get more people into homes. And what that will do is it will take the person who is marginally priced out of the ridiculous system we have now and allow them to participate at a subsistence level in it. If instead we took all that energy and all that uh, desire and said, how do we take someone like you who is not in a 40-hour-a-week job trying to get 10 hours of overtime so they can save up for a down payment on a home, but instead is saying, I'm going to fix three Lime bikes a week and i just going to have a very low cost of living. I'm going to live in a smaller house and a little place. I'm going to DIY a lot of it. And, and we just get them to like the next level of sophistication. How many people can we get out of homelessness doing just that? I think an enormous amount of people. And what kind of path does that put them on? It puts them on a path, maybe not to being Bill Gates, maybe not to being Warren Buffett, but it puts them on a path to security and it puts them on the path to building a better future for themselves and, and anyone who comes after them in a way that getting the, uh, you know, the, the person loaded up with student loan debts, $10,000 of it paid off so they can get a 50-year mortgage and work a nine-to-five job with 10 hours of overtime and a side hustle for the next 40 years. I think that future is a dead end. And I think that the future that Q kind of personifies is not necessarily where we all want to end up, but as a starting point, it has a lot more hope for me. Yeah. Well, mad respect to Q. Shout out to Q. This was a fun story to talk about. Uh, so yes. we'll leave it there. But before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show that where we can talk about anything that has been taking up our time these days, anything we've been reading, watching, listening to. So Chuck, what have you been up to? Um, I was I was kind of thinking about what to share. And I, I decided that I would give something like a touch personal. I'm, people who have been around Strong Towns a long time know that I have two daughters. And it's amazing because when I started this, they were obviously much younger than they are now today. Chloe, my oldest, is a senior in high school and going to go to college next year. And we just spent the weekend doing uh, or finishing uh, college applications. And, and my part of this was to be the final edit on the essay. She wrote the essay herself. She had 800 and some words. She needed to get down to 650. Dad kind of helped cut some things that needed to be cut that 
created some tears. It's very interesting because I think in a lot of ways, my kids are way more capable than I was, uh, way smarter than I was, like know a lot more. Are, are, there, there's, in a sense, more asked of them in this process. They're also like less ready than I ever was. You know, like I look and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is such a mess. It is a, a very eye-opening experience as a dad to go through this idea of discerning where the rest of your life is going to take you. I'm very proud of her, but I also recognize there's a lot of families out there that you know, have kids that are at this point in life and it brings its own joy and it also brings its own apprehension and stress. And yeah, this has been one of those weeks where there's been a little bit of both. There's been a little bit of love and joy and there's been a little bit of, oh my gosh, I can't wait till you leave the house because <laughs> you need to get out of this place, kiddo. <laughs> I'm sure she's been anxious too. And do you know what she'll be studying or any idea what she's thinking of studying? That is one of the tensions. Yeah. Uh, so no, I will say no. And I don't think I, she does. I either. don't envy being in that stage of life. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, you know, it's kind of daunting having to pick something that you'll do for the rest of your life, hoping mm. it's the right decision. <laughs> Not a fun decision. It, it's tough. It's tough for me because I was if a far more focused and driven. I mean, she's very driven and she's very focused, but I mean, I joined the army on my 17th birthday to pay for college. I knew what I was going to do. I, I knew my career path and all that, you know, too much. I, I probably should have taken more time. Uh, but for her, it's like, yeah, I have no, I have no idea what I want to do. The, the fortunate thing is that she's very good at a lot of things. So part of her conundrum is that she really likes to write. She's good at writing. She really likes to read. She's very good at it. She's really good at math. She's fairly good at science. So she has a broad palette to choose from, but she's far from deciding. <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm sure when you were 18, you didn't think you'd be doing strong towns, right? So you had a you had a. When I was 28, <laughs> I didn't think I'd be doing strong towns. Yeah. So so you know you knew you'd become an engineer, but you know maybe your path demonstrates that you could have a plan, right? But uh -huh. it could go in a variety of different ways. And it's not like you just do one thing and that's the only thing you do for the rest of your life. Yes. Um, yes. So hopefully and that makes it less daunting. I've tried to tell her that too. Like, you know, just embrace it. Take hard things. I mean, that's what we always told her during high school is just take hard classes, push yourself and you'll have lots of options. And, uh, she does, but now we're at that point where you you are being forced a little bit to, I mean, at the very least, she's going to be forced to pick a place that fits her to go to college. And that is a, I went to the University of Minnesota. My wife went to the University of Minnesota. I, there's this big part of me that as dad, I'm thinking, well, my daughter will go to the University of Minnesota. I would really, that would really make me proud. I She applied to the University of Minnesota. I think on her list of places, it is her third or fourth choice. And probably rightfully so, like recognizing her and what she needs and, and where she's at. It's probably getting lost in this massive university. Um, it's probably not the right thing for her. But Yeah. Well, I'll, congratulations. I'll you, you <laughs> it's exciting. <Yeah. laughs> That's very exciting. Well, with um, my, you know, with Rachel, my colleague, um, having a baby in the last few weeks. She um, did? 
No, you don't know this? I'm sorry. I don't know this. No, I didn't know this. I will send her a message after we get off. I'm well, she's totally unplugged, so good luck. Um Oh, okay. She'll, she'll her, get it when have, I when oh, she gets um, back. <laughs> yeah, you can text her. But she's um yeah, she had a little baby boy last month. Aww. Um She's been off now for like three weeks and won't be back oh. till in January sometime. But she's, um, yeah, she had a little baby boy, Marshall. He's he's just beautiful. I mean, it's oh. just amazing. And I'm so happy for her. But I'm also, you know, <laughs> I, I'm at the end of the raising kids journey in terms of the oldest one. And she's at the very beginning. And it's kind of, I would go back to where she's at. <laughs> you would or wouldn't? Oh, I would. I, yes, I yeah. would do this again. It's been yeah. way more way more positive than than not. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I don't have anything quite as fun to share, but I did want to share. I'm rewatching a show that um, I watched, I guess, probably like three or four years ago that I actually think you would really like because it's kind of a historical fiction. Uh, it's a period drama called The Peaky Blinders. And it basically takes place in Birmingham between 1919, so right after the First World War. And then, you know, by the time season six rolls around, it's like in the 1930s where there's the rise of like, you know, Nazism and fascism. And so it's really about this like this family uh, uh, that kind of partakes in organized crime and industry and business uh, which is really interesting, but it takes place during all these, really between two major wars uh, and follows these historical events through them. And, and it integrates uh, actual people who lived at the time into the overall story. So I actually think you would really like it. It has an awesome aesthetic. Uh, it's on Netflix. I started watching it again and I was like, this is like an awesome show. <laughs> um, and okay. I don't hear a lot of people talk about it, but I think it's kind of underrated. So yeah, you should, you-, you should watch it and let me know. So I'm looking at it now, and I want to tell you, Cillian Murphy, I think that's how you say his name, right? Yeah, Cillian Murphy. Cillian? Um, I know I he is going to, yeah, I, I, I know he is going to be, oh my gosh, who's the guy who led the atomic bomb project? In, oh, um, yeah. Um, uh, Oppenheimer. Yeah, Oppenheim- Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. Yeah, he is going to be him, and I've seen like little set shots on that, and it looks amazing. I mean, I I actually like him as an actor. Like he's been in certain things. He was the uh, the scarecrow in the Dark Knight trilogy. Just has some like interesting. Was little, he? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And I like him. I think he's an interesting actor. He was in Dunkirk. Um, huh. He was uh, the guy on the. You ever watch Dunkirk? It's a great no, movie. No. So anyway, uh, I enjoy him. Tom Hardy is another yeah. one who is uh, in the third of the Batman, the Dark Knight trilogy. But he, uh, I, I actually have this one uh, bookmarked like to watch because it's been recommended to me in the past. And so now that you've told me, I'm going to go, I'll, I'll go watch it. I'll watch it. Yeah, start watching it. I, wa- I really want to know your opinion on it because you're kind of like a historical uh, yeah. expert, you know, you, expert. you come to Kansas City Just in and the you World start, War I museum. <laughs> you start giving tour guides in the World War I museum. <laughs> so yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show overall. It's, it, I just think it's a really cool show and I always enjoy watching it. So 
Okay. Yeah. I will give yeah. it a try. You, you've never failed me, Abby. Okay, good. Yeah, you did end up watching Breaking Bad, didn't you? I did because of I'm you. I'm very happy yeah, about that. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah, it's good stuff. Okay, well, we will end it there. Thanks, Chuck. And uh, thanks for everybody for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. See you later, Chuck. Take care. Get down tonight.